Welcome to the Belltale Rugby Podcast with me, Neve Campbell, me, Jonathan Bradley, and me, Adam McKendry. With expert analysis and special guests, let's kick off. Hello and welcome to another episode of Belltale Rugby. I am your host, Neve Campbell, and as always, I'm joined by our sports reporter, Adam McKendry, and Belfast Telegraph rugby correspondent, Jonathan Bradley. Today, we are going to be reviewing Ireland's demolition, I think that's fair to say, of Romania in their World Cup opening weekend. We'll be looking ahead to the next game against Tonga and discussing potential implications, mainly for our Ulster men. First off, Johnny and Adam, welcome. Any personal highlights or lowlights for the weekend, first off, for you guys? I mean, like, if you're an Ireland fan, that 82-8 destruction is obviously an overall positive, but um, anything stick out in your mind, Adam? I mean, the... the personal highlight for me was after all the talk of the beating the spread last week and how we said <laughs> Ireland can't possibly beat the spread they obliterated the spread and then some and I sent Johnny a message saying so about that spread <laughs> and we just kind of had a laugh about that on Saturday um, that was the undoer though because South Africa beat the spread which we said that they would mm-hmm. oh well um, I, I didn't in fairness uh, Georgia just beat the spread, just, <laughs> and France beat the spread. So that was that was the undoer of their predictions. Yeah, um, personal highlight for me uh, outside of the Ireland game. I mean, because we're obviously going to talk about the Ireland game, but the, the personal highlight for me in terms of the action over the weekend, um, I really enjoyed Gregory Aldrich's performance for France. I mean, France in general were, I think, the most impressive team on the first weekend as a whole but I think Aldrete had an outstanding game at number eight and he's one of those players that has kind of epitomized this France team and their rise in that he sort of started as one of those kind of squad guys at La Rochelle who was doing well and wasn't really getting too many plaudits but then once he made his way into the international setup he has been like at the forefront of everything that France have been doing and Friday I think was sort of the the culmination of what he's been doing to sort of work his way into the conversation as one of the best back rowers in the world. And uh, that was probably the individual highlight for me this weekend. And then like the game highlight was obviously that Fiji Wales game. It was the only one that really had any kind of jeopardy to it in terms of the final result. Mm -hmm. What about you, Johnny? Favourite bits? Yeah, I really enjoyed the Fiji Wales game purely because it was the eighth game of rugby that I'd watched that weekend <laughs> and it was the first one that actually came down to the wire. Um, so that was great. It actually also really annoyed me and we'll get probably get to it later, but like the general refereeing annoyed me and then I got annoyed by being annoyed about the refereeing because the one thing that I didn't want this World Cup to be remembered for was like refereeing controversy and then I came away from the first weekend being like, Fiji should have won that game. Yeah. Arguably they should have won the game anyway. I think they miss they would have missed the conversion on the last play of the game, I think, <laughs> which would have been even more heartbreaking than letting the ball slip through their fingers. Um but I don't think it should have really come down to that. So that was actually both uh both a highlight and a low light. Do you not think as well though, like all the stories were literally either about 
like about refereeing decisions and red cards that should have been on pundits saying different things. And then as you said, Johnny, as well, like before we actually started the podcast, we were saying the Wales-Fiji game was probably the one that, not to call the rest of them boring, but you didn't think, you thought it was going to be like the most exciting opening weekend for yeah. World Cup and so it was I, the opposite. Like, I talked up an awful lot of these games. Like I was looking forward to seeing Australia-Georgia. I was looking forward to England-Argentina, looking forward to Wales-Fiji, looking forward to France against New Zealand. Obviously, there was the Ireland game and then there was South Africa-Scotland. And they were all interesting in their own way. It wasn't that they were bad games. Well, England-Argentina was a bad game, but it was one of those like engrossing bad games in the sense that you were watching it to actually try and reaffirm that what you were seeing in front of you was happening in terms of Argentina being so bad. An Argentina team that not by virtue of them being in the same class as 07 or 15 but an Argentina team that I had tipped to get to the semi-finals on the basis of they had to be better than all these other teams that were in their side of the draw they were awful South Africa Scotland Scotland probably confirmed what we thought about them in the sense that they are below that top tier and it was relatively comfortable for South Africa in the end Australia were obviously a positive surprise. I mean, we saw an Australian side opt to take a scrum against Georgia. You know, that <laughs> that was mad. Um, but they looked pretty good. And this is the team that I have said, I think have the most headroom in this tournament in the sense that from start to finish, I think they'll improve the most. So for them to start out strongly against Georgia with undoubtedly the game of the weekend this week to come, like Neve, we talked about, not really being that fussed, <laughs> or sorry, not 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 being fussed, but the games were not uh, the thrillers. Yeah. In the end, in the last quarter, that we expected them to be. There's not too many live games this weekend, like mm-hmm. apart from Australia Fiji. Like, there's an awful lot of games that could get up to that Ireland uh, Romania <laughs> seventy odd points. Yeah. Um, get those spreads out again. Yeah, yeah. Should should have checked the spreads again before we came on. Um. But yeah, I think the teams that we thought were good were impressive. Yes. But they were perhaps the traditional teams, if you like, showed that all this talk about it being the most open World Cup and the most open race for the quarterfinals. After one weekend, it certainly looks like we're going to have fairly traditional makeup of our quarterfinals. A lot of water to come onto the bridge, obviously. Well, I I suppose we go back to or I go back to what I was saying earlier what what have we learned about the teams this week that we didn't already know I mean France France we knew were going to be good in front of their home crowd I think they were maybe a little bit better than we expected like that was a really good opening performance but we learned a lot about chasing hats in the opening ceremony well we did and we learned about how much the uh, French (laughs) crowd do not like Bill Beaumont or Emmanuel Macron we did learn that Um, we all learned a bit of politics yeah but you know what? We learned how much everybody hits choirs. Yeah, to, to the extent that they're all being kicked out of the tournament per kids. I, I really feel bad for them. <laughs> to be fair, they, like, were, they weren't there anyway. Because I wrote my column about this and about halfway through it, and I was like, I need to make clear that I'm not bashing the kids. The kids are fine. It's not their performance that has upset me. It's how it has ruined the anthems has upset me. But also, they weren't there. It, it's a recording. Mm. So it's like, it's not like they brought all these kids to the World Cup. 
and they got to be a part of the World Cup. It's like they were recorded somewhere in Paris and played over a loudspeaker. Which well, is kind of creepy, isn't it? It's like weirdly ethereal. Oh, it's, it's like horror movie level like, things. I think it was, was it Japan's anthem? Like Japan's anthem sounded like the soundtrack to a Stephen King film. <laughs> <laughs> sung, by, sung by this choir. It was... Uh, it was a big concern <laughs> over the weekend. So the biggest losers of the weekend weren't Romania. It's these kids that were asked to sing all these That's national the anthems. That's the low light. That's the low light of the weekend. Yeah, they've, they've been booted out of the competition after one weekend. Like, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean can, can you imagine? Can you imagine saying to your to judges' houses? Can you imagine if you're one of those kids, you know, saying, "Mom, Dad, I've, I've been chosen to sing an anthem for the." For the World Cup, and after one week, it's like, well, everyone hated you. It was so, a like, weird choice because, like, why change something that's not if it's not broken? Like, why? Yeah, I was... cannot stress enough that I did not have an issue with the with, children. With the children. <laughs> These children that are apparently a diverse bunch that reflects the changing nature of France. Some of them have come through difficult childhoods. That's why they've all been brought together in a choir. And they were good. It just wasn't the vibe. No. It wasn't the vibe. And you also had it played over a PA, which meant it sort of... Echoey. And apparently it was better in the stadium, according to people who were in the stadium. But on TV, it just came across as a garble of, like, the choir, the crowd, and the teams who, you know, God doesn't give with both hands. There's not a lot of rugby players that can sing. So you have these <laughs> tuneless 23 men shouting the anthem. You've, you've got a choir of children singing the anthem, and then you've got... A stadium full of drunk fans. Nobody's in time. It's just a mess. I, I'm just going to name this podcast. Jonathan doesn't hate kids. Just, just to yeah, get the message across. The I feel. I feel like he hasn't quite made his point well enough that he does not hate children. The kids. The kids are blameless. That's what I'm saying. Um, the kids are alright. But it was a terrible decision. <laughs> to to get back to the rugby, which I think people want to hear us talk about. Like, nah. <laughs> what, you know, we didn't learn anything about Ireland because they were playing terrible opposition. We didn't learn anything new about England. They are a boring team who kicked their way to success over a bad uh, performance. I, th I, think you can say, I don't think we thought England Argentina. had that character in them. Uh, they were playing a very rank average Argentina team on the day. And f fair enough, they got the job done. But like, do you see that kind of rugby winning games whenever it comes down to the knockouts? Absolutely not. But bearing in mind that I didn't think they had the type of rugby in them to win this game. So in that sense, I learned something in the sense that I thought I thought Argentina were almost a banker for this game, to be perfectly honest. And when England went down to 14 men after three minutes, yeah. you're almost thinking that we're not going to learn or we're, we're not going to see what we thought about England mm -hmm. come to pass in front of us because all the talk is going to be about the red card. And then all of a sudden, George Ford brings the game back to the 1990s and is just popping over drop goals. In in fairness, that is a skill in itself, and it was very impressive to watch someone just so metronomically bang over drop goals again and again and again. Again, boring as anything in terms of the style of rugby, but in terms of the execution, it was very, very good. What about, what? obviously we're Belltail Rugby, what did you think of the Ulster guys' performances? Rob Herring, obviously... Um, Started, crashed over for his fifth test try. Um, Tom O'Toole came on for Furlong and Hendy came on for James Ryan. So what would you guys give the ratings overall, I guess, for them? I think I gave them all sevens, actually. I was doing ratings. Um, <laughs> oh, I didn't even know. There you go. Um, I was concerned whenever the first two lineouts went astray. Not that they were necessarily Rob Herring's fault, but... Wobbly. Yeah, the, you know, the hooker's always going to get 
blamed for that, but he actually came into the game really well. I don't remember. We obviously have come to associate it more with Leinster, but I don't remember ever seeing Herring even attempt a five-metre tap-and-go, let alone a five-metre tap-and-go where he essentially scored our first phase just by powering his way over the line. So that, like, that was eye-catching to me in the sense that, you know, we talk about what Herring does well and we always credit his nuts and bolts stuff um, his set piece that's really um, has really become the strength of his game having whenever he emerged the breakdown and even his carrying were the strengths of his game but he's really sort of adapted but we talk about Shane and we talk about Kelleher as these dynamic hookers that are changing what we think about the position so I thought it was really eye-catching to see Rob Herring um, have this really strong powerful carry for a try the, Equally, sorry, Adam. I was just going to say the problem is, I think, exactly what you just said. While it's a strength, it's also a negative, and that is Rob Herring ever going to be a more dynamic ball carrier than either Sheehan or Keller? Probably not. So, where he has to kind of elevate himself to give Andy Farrell a different option is for him to be so solid in the set piece that Farrell's going, well, We've got two very similar hookers in Sheehan and Kelleher in terms of their dynamism around the pitch. And Herring gives us that other option that we kind of... So for me, and I, I do agree with you, I don't think that Ireland or that the line-out issues were all on Rob Herring's shoulders, as a lot of people can tend to do whenever line-outs go wrong. They just immediately blame the hooker. But at this point, but, it can't be the hooker because every hooker in the squad, including Tom Stewart when he was in in the summer, every single hooker in the squad has been having issues. Exactly. So there's something malfunctioning in the line-outs. Not to sound too dramatic, the essence of the line-out has a malfunction in it at the mm-hmm. minute. So that, that's where Herring needs to sort of elevate his game above Shane and Callagher and go, look... I'm not the dynamic ball carrier that these other two are, but I'm going to give you set-piece reliability every single time you select me. That, that to me, is where I think he needs to stand out as opposed to trying to bring his game up to where Shane and Callagher are in the, in the dynamism because I don't think he is that style of player to do that. I think it basically just comes down to whoever has a better game. Like We know that they're almost certainly both going to play against Tonga, mm. Kelleher and uh, Herring. I mean, Sheehan is one of the very few players in that Ireland team that I would drop straight in against South Africa mm. if he doesn't play against Tonga. We're assuming that he's not. And I think it probably does just come down to who has a better game against Tonga because if Kelleher doesn't show up against Tonga, then when was the last time you saw it from him, you know? He has had so many unfortunate injuries and I think they trust Rob. So unless... Personally, I think Rob is now ahead, and I think unless Kelleher comes in and shoots the lights out against Tonga, I think Herring plays against South Africa. I think Farrell still prefers Kelleher. Just in terms of what he brings yeah, in terms I, of physicality? I, I, yeah, I, I think that... And I, I still do believe that Shane and Kelleher are two very similar hookers in terms of their style, but I do think that just you know going back over the pecking order that has historically been there, I think Kelleher is the inside track. Set piece against South Africa. Look at that Scotland game. Look at what South Africa were able to do to the Scotland scrum. The scrum especially whenever they brought 
their second front row on. But you can't so big in the game. You can't fight fire with fire whenever it comes up against South Africa because they will always beat you in the set piece. If you try and fight fire with fire, you have to find other ways to beat them. But you have you have to get parity in the set piece, and that's what Scotland weren't able to do in the second half because they actually won a scrum penalty in the first half, and then that second set of front row forwards whenever they come on for South Africa, like they just turn the screws. So you need to get parity in the set piece. Mm. Do you think, well, first of all, looking at Tonga, I guess, so 12 of the players that started against England in the second World Cup warm-up game were in the starting lineup against Romania. Do you think it's the case we're going to see several of the Ireland players that got starts against Samoa in that final match? Do you think they're going to now um, get starts versus Tonga? Or who do you think overall, who would be your top team to pick? It's a difficult thing to do because Tonga are a live prospect in the sense that, you know, they've got a rake of former All Blacks that have come back in um, most prominent from our perspective, obviously Charles Piatar, though there is a slight fitness doubt about um, Piatar, so he might not actually play, unfortunately. Um, There's Johnny's feature goal. <laughs> don't even start me <laughs> on what I'm going to write about this week with Charles Piatar, he's real doubt. Um, so then you have to win the game first and foremost. You've got a few lightly run players that need more minutes, We'll probably come to this later, but Sexton for me is one of them. Kelleher, who we've spoken about, is another. I think that obviously Robbie Henshaw didn't play um, at the weekend, having been pulled out of that game. Stuart McCluskey hasn't played yet. Mac Hansen came off the bench, having not supposed to be on the bench. Josh van der Flyer was on the bench. These are all players that I would expect to come in. So I'd expect to see a strong team. And then what I would expect to see then against South Africa is a blend of the two teams, essentially to become what we all think is a fairly well-established Ireland 15 with really the only selection dilemma, if you like, that I see, and I wrote about this in the Sunday Life uh, at the weekend, is your makeup of the back five forwards. Yeah, I do think that there has sort of been a a stall set out with that selection in game day one to suggest that there's going to be a a rotation going on and they're going to try and give everyone minutes if possible. I mean, look, you've got a squad of, is it 33? Conan is still injured, so he's probably... Sorry, Conan and Sheehan are probably your Kilcoyne two. Kilcoyne as well. Kilcoyne, my apologies. Um so you, you've got a couple of exceptions, but you know the squad is small enough that there is scope. An Ireland squad is good enough that you can rotate and you shouldn't have that degree of um, of drop-off in performance. And I, I do agree with Johnny, and I would recommend anybody go back and read that Sunday Life piece because Johnny does outline it very well in that how do you sort of start to look at your back five forwards if you're Andy Farrell you know do you treat this as your sort of hit out before South Africa and therefore you want to get the combos that you're intending on having against the Springboks playing against Tonga or do you still try and rotate like we're assuming Josh van der Fleer plays Ryan Baird has to come back in Keelan Doris says he wants to play again but do you want to wrap him in cotton wool a little bit given how important he is to this team's success and then you know where does Henderson fit in you know is he going to play are you going to play James Ryan again like 
there are a lot of questions asked in the back row and personally for me i think you do want to try and get some sort of continuity in there in terms of the team that you put out you probably don't want to be making too many changes going into the south africa game from the tonga game so uh i would imagine but i don't think you can do that though because i don't think we'll see too many changes in the romania team but if he's going to make changes this week for Tonga, then he has to make them and get reverse them if you like, because the team against South Africa is going to be Keenan, Lou, Hansen, Aki, Ringrose, Sexton, Gibson Park, Porter, Sheehan if he's fit, Tyg Furlong, James Ryan, somebody else, and that somebody else impacts on what we see in the back row. But mm-hmm. I would still expect the back row to be O'Mahony, Vanderflyer. Doris so I don't think we're going to see that team against Tonga because like we've said you got to get Henshaw in there you got to yeah. get um, McCluskey in there Jimmy O'Brien's not played Handy was only on the bench you know there's a, I think we'll see a lot more changes this week before we see a few of the guys that play against Tonga coming in or st- sorry, a few of the guys against Tonga staying in that team and an awful lot of the guys that started against Romania then coming back in, I think. Well, I suppose here's the critical question. Is there anybody in this squad you don't see playing at all? No, no in- injury notwithstanding. I think if, say, Jack Conan doesn't get back for this week, I think it becomes very difficult to select him against South Africa. And then it becomes very difficult to select him against Scotland if Ireland lose mm. to South Africa because do you want to drop somebody who hasn't played straight into um, a must-win game? But I don't think that I see anybody else that hasn't played. Like, you know, we will see Bielham. I expect that we're going to see McCluskey. He's probably somebody that's falling into that category of what you're talking about. Well, if he, we he, don't see him this week, do we see him if all the games become must-win? Yeah, well, I, I was sort of thinking... You know, let's let's say Sexton starts again this week. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, there's a real possibility yeah. we don't see Ross Byrne. Yeah. Well, if if Sexton starts this week, do you put him out there with the risk of having him play eighty minutes? You know, because if if you, as you're saying, you know, we need to see Jimmy O'Brien at some point. Do I necessarily think he'll start? I'm not sure that you'll see him start. You but then put Keenan out there again with O'Brien on the bench. Yeah. But then, if you're putting set, if you're starting Sexton, surely you have to have a replacement fly half on the bench because surely you're. Yeah, because, sorry, sorry so, it could be Carly, is what I meant. I well, so so what what I, what I'm meaning is you're running out of spaces to put McCluskey into this team. Oh, sorry, no, I think McCluskey will start at twelve this week because I oh, think okay. Bondiaki gets wrapped in cotton wool because he's going to be so important against South Africa, especially the form that he's been in through the warm-ups and on Saturday where I thought he was Ireland's best player. I know he didn't get man of the match, but I thought he was their best player. No, I, I do agree. I, I thought he was excellent. And certainly I, I would I would say, yeah, you do wrap him in wool. The, the only thing I would say is do you want him to have, you know, one game back with Henshaw before the South Africa game, but I I would say you know you've he's played enough with Henshaw that I think you, it'll be you really, I think it'll be Ring Rosenaki against South Africa. I, I don't think Henshaw will make it against South Africa. Sorry, uh, that was who I meant. You, <laughs> We're talking about Henshaw too much. <laughs> do you do you think Adam? Because I know you're saying say say you start Saxon. Do you think he should start? 
against Tonga, obviously. I suppose the question that you have to add on to that is, did we see enough from him against Romania to say, yeah, he's back, he's good, we can we can safely say that he's fine and we're going to let him go against South Africa without having played in between. Um, per- personally, I would say he would be fine to sit this one out and go back in for the South Africa game. I don't think you need to play him this week out of a requirement to keep getting him back up to speed. I, I thought, all right, he w- they were playing against significantly worse opposition. Exactly. But- well, so do you not want them to get a run against Tonga where it's a step up in intensity before you have the ultimate step up in intensity, which is playing the world champions? And also bear in mind, Ireland rested Sexton for their second game of the World Cup last time around, lost, and the World Cup went to hell on a handcart. They never, like, they never got back on track from that. Like Japan, yes then we're probably a better team than Tonga are now. But people weren't saying that before they went and beat Ireland. Like, you got to win the game and you got to give yourself the best chance of making an impact on this World Cup. And I understand that there is a possibility that you can say that you could put too many minutes in Sexton's legs in a short space of time. But whenever we talk about wrestling, like, what are we wrestling him for? He's only got another six weeks of being a professional rugby player left. <laughs> yeah, but equally... I'm just aware of the workload that is going to be on Saxon's shoulders. Like, he is going to play 80 minutes against South Africa. He is going to play 80 minutes against Scotland. He's going to play... I mean, all right, fair enough. You know, if if there's a blowout win and, you know, Ireland end up, you know, they're leading, like, by 30 points against Scotland with 20 minutes to go, yeah, you're going to bring him off. But you've got to go into those games thinking that Saxon is going to play 80 minutes. There is a time week in between those games, remember? Like, I, I, they have South Africa and then a week off before Scotland. Even and they don't strictly need to beat Scotland if they beat South Africa. Although, we'd probably so. that's probably not the same because France probably showed themselves to be a step above New Zealand, so maybe it's not as... A free hit against Scotland, maybe. I like even even with all that, I still think you like to 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 your point about you know he he was only playing Romania and you, you need to give him a game to sort of step up to that intensity. If there's one player we've learned that can just yeah. match the intensity that he's being put into, it's Jonathan Sexton. Like the guy, the guy goes from not playing for three months for Leinster to leading them to a win. The, Champions Cup quarterfinal or he goes from not playing for five months then comes back into the Six Nations and looks like he's been playing the 10 weeks prior so you know I I wouldn't have any worries about Jonathan Sexton stepping up to the intensity of the South Africa game even though the previous game he played was Romania I mean look even though the the only game that he's played is against Romania mm-hmm. in the last six months so it's not that the previous game was Romania it's the fact that the only team that he has played in six months is Romania. That still doesn't worry me. And look, even even though it was Romania, factor in the conditions that they were playing in. All right, they're going to have to play in the same conditions against South Africa, but it's not exactly like that was a leisurely stroll in the park. You still have 76 to... 76 pl- points, though. So. Oh, look, look no, in, in terms... 35 in, degree heat. And- yeah, in, in, ter- in terms of the the performance that Ireland had to put in to win that game, like Ireland could have been playing at like 10% capacity and they would have won that game. And but 
equally, you know, you're still having to go out there in that heat, in those conditions, play that game. I I don't I'm have talking any about the speed of the defense, uh, the speed of the other team's defense. Oh no, so I forget the best defense in the world is the things that he saw and the pictures that were painted in front of him against Romania in the same realm as what he's going to see against South Africa. No, you can make the argument that Tonga isn't going to be either, but it's going to be a hell of a lot closer, and I think that might be important. I'm writing a piece tomorrow arguing against somebody else arguing that Sexton should be uh, rested for this game. I've actually... <laughs> so this is good preparation is why, yeah. for you. I've so actually, I'm not entertaining yourself. <laughs> I've, um, I, like, I, that's what I was going to say. I've seen like voices online and stuff saying, like personally, they think he should be left out of the match day 23 entirely. And it should be noted, though, that he like he literally said a quote after that last match, hopefully I'm better for the game and hopefully I can improve my performance for Tonga. So he's fully, you know, up and willing. I think he thinks, you know, he probably knows stuff we don't. So he probably is going to start. Which is the interesting thing as well, because like in the Monday morning jury thing that we do, Tony Ward, former Ireland I'd have, said that he thinks the decision will be left up to Sexton. And if the decision is left up to Sexton, even without that quote, like yeah. we know what he's going to say, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, right, moving on to Ulster. Um, and more negative things ending <laughs> in the podcast than last week, potential negative. Um, not sure if anyone really knew about this, obviously, because everything else is going on with the World Cup, but the Ulster development team had a game at the weekend on Saturday. They got beat 56-0 by Connacht. Um, we actually had a listener question that I didn't get around to last week for you, Johnny, and it was uh, Colombo saying, well, I know all the attention is on the World Cup, but I'd love some focus on Ulster's concerning age-grade performance, which seems to be in a bit of a death spiral. The under-18s and under-19s have just been whitewashed in the interpros, this after last year's woeful Ireland representation. How much should we read into this? All of the uh, underage, because bear in mind, this question actually came in before the uh, the development of 56. Foreboding. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm often in two minds about this because... As we see with like under 20s international teams and stuff, it's not so much about how the team does as it is how many of the team look like they're ready to become, or sorry, ready to go on to be capable of playing, you know, for the Ireland under 20s, we're talking about playing internationals. For Ulster, I would be talking about players who look like they're going to be able to play Champions Cup rugby and Ulster probably need three guys a year to replenish their squad in the way that it needs to be replenished three guys a year coming through that are capable of playing in that level and to be fair for a while they did have that so you talk about you know Mike Larry, James Hume Balakun, Stuart Moore, Tom Stewart um, all coming through relatively close together. I know Tom Stewart was a little bit delayed, but that was mostly due to injury. But there's no point sort of patting yourself on the back and saying, yeah, we got those five five or six guys through in the space of what I suppose is now four or five years because you need them to keep coming through. And that's what a team like Leinster does. And there's no point comparing yourself to the likes of La Rochelle because they operate in a completely different way. So Leinster are the ones that are operating under the same sort of remit, if you like. But where it does become concerning 
is where it becomes a pattern. So say, for example, you could have a complete outlier of a team where you have three really, really good players and 12 not-so-good players. And you still get those players through, and that doesn't so much impact on the future of the senior team. But where it does impact on the senior team is if you have these patterns of bad results, because it's highly unlikely that you're going to have teams year after year where you have three gems and the rest not so much. So that's where it becomes concerning for me. And, you know, we've seen this, say, again, I go back to the under the under 20s, like you can see what's coming through if you look at underage rugby year upon year upon year. So people that watch a lot of under 20s rugby could probably see the dip in England's form coming in the same way that they could see the rise in France's form coming. And what I come back to would be an interview that I did with um, Brian Young probably eight or nine months ago. So um, as like I'm sure anybody listening to this would know, like Brian Young played for Ulster, played for Ireland, um, did a little bit of work in the academy and now coaches Dariata. So he's sort of seen what it takes to play provincial, seen what it takes to play international and has also got a sort of good grasp on underage rugby through academy and working in schools and stuff. And he had this theory that the issue why we don't see enough Ulster players coming through, and at this time we were talking about the fact that nobody had been born in Ulster, schooled in Ulster, come through the Ulster Academy and played for Ireland as a forward since Ian Henderson. That's obviously now changed because um, Tom Stewart over the summer, but the, the overall point still remains. And his theory was that there's not enough bottlenecks in Ulster underage rugby. So you don't have this idea where people are like fighting tooth and nail early enough because the crunch maybe comes, whether it be to get into the academy or even after the academy to get into the senior squad. And his theory is that they don't have that early enough in comparison to say Leinster where, you know, you you look at the likes of say Hugo Keenan or whatever, and you hear these stories about, you know, how they had to really fight just to make first 15 rugby and obviously like um, develop so much thereafter. And yes, people can go back and point to the likes of Jacob Stockdale, he probably has a similar story, or even the likes of, you know, McCluskey or Henderson, where it looked like they weren't going to get an academy place, but then ended up being Irish internationals. But I don't know exactly how you go about it, whether you go about it by having fewer teams, but I think Brian Young's point and given his experience, I would be tended to agree with him and take his uh, level of expertise on it is that you have to do something, even if it's artificially, to increase the competition at a young age. And that comes with its own uh, its own drawbacks because there will be people who don't want that you know there will be people that are more academically minded you know we hear every every year it seems you know at the launch of the school's cup you're told about somebody that's brilliant but a rugby career doesn't interest them and that's just an annual thing over the last number of years and you do run the risk I think of turning people off rugby but then you're get into the debate of what do you actually want underage rugby to be? Do you want it to be fun or do you want it to be something that creates professionals for the Ulster senior team? I, I Like, I don't know the answer, but 
that remember you said you didn't know what you're going to write your column about <laughs> <laughs> there's a good idea um that is us for this week guys we are going to be back next tuesday to review the tonga game it is at eight o'clock like our time um on saturday night and yeah thanks for listening and see you then <laughs>